Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Ich warte seit Wochen auf diesen Tag und tanz vor Freude über den Asphalt. Als wär's sein Rhythmus, als gäb's sein Lied, das mich immer weiter durch die Straßen zieht. Komm dir entgegen. Hello and good morning to the Gegenpressing Podcast. Yeah, we're back. Um, we're doing a bit of a different episode today. Um, I'm your host, Manuel Veth. No Stefan Bienkowski today. And he is on leave because he has his in-laws at home, which means um, occupied with other things than football for the weekend. But that's okay. Um, you're not going to lose out on a Scottish accent this weekend because I brought in a replacement in Derek Ray, the voice of the Bundesliga, ESPN Bundesliga commentator. Um, Derek, I think you also not just do ESPN, but you do a bunch of Bundesliga stuff and you do La Liga. And I, I mean, at this point, if you don't know who Derek Ray is, um, I think you've missed out on football altogether. But Derek, how's it going? Well, thank you for that introduction, Manu. Great to be with you, as always. Nice to be filling in for Stefan. And yes, Bundesliga World Feed as well. If you listen to the Bundesliga World Feed commentaries during games, you'll hear my voice quite a lot. But as you've said, I'm the lead commentator for ESPN's coverage of the Bundesliga in the United States and the voice of the EA Sports FIFA video game. If you're of a certain mm -hmm. age, I think younger people tend, if they know me at all, to uh, identify me with that. So it's a few different things. And of course, La Liga as well for ESPN these days. You've done NFL as well, right, Derek? I have. Yes, I have for a few years. This was an idea that Prime Video had to come up with a British English style of commentary for the NFL. So we did it for three years and it was great fun, but we're not doing it anymore. But it came at a time in my life when I wanted to try something different. So I got that opportunity. That, that's fair enough. I, th I think that's so cool. Um, I mean, I've been lucky enough. I mean, this is, I think, the third or fourth time that you're on this show. And yes. Every time it's been a pleasure. We've met, of course, a few times mm -hmm. um, in Germany, but also weirdly enough, once at the Women's World Cup in France, um, right. where we both were located in Nice. So sad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Poor us. It was probably the best location to be based in for this World Cup. Um, France is a wonderful country, of course, but Nice is probably one of my favorites. Um, but yeah, um, it's it's great to have you back on. Really looking forward to to discuss a few things and. It's a bit of a heavy time at the moment, um, a very heavy time, uh, even what's going on in Ukraine, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, the It feels like the, the world order that we've lived in over the last uh, 20, 20, 30 years has been sort of thrown into turmoil, right? And um, I grew up in the in the 1990s i was born in 1984 so i can still remember the, the berlin wall and um, i remember when the berlin wall fell my dad said to me now we have peace and that's sort of the 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 mantra that we grew up with right um derek you're a little bit older than me so you of course you remember a time where the threat of what's going on right now was very real and um 
it feels like we almost turned back the, or someone in the Kremlin turned back the clock. Um, and I, without talking too much about the conflict itself, it does have an impact on German football. Um, Schalke is the most prominent example. Um, the Gazprom sponsorship has been hugely debated over the weekend. Um, Schalke dropped it at first, replacing it with a Schalke 0404 slogan for the game on the weekend. And um, the news this morning, Derek, is that they got they ended the relationship with Gazprom, or to be precise, Gazprom Germania, which is the the corporation that um, finances Schalke. Um, that's 10 million euros a year, Derek. That's gone. That's a lot of money. We all know the financial problems that Schalke have. How do they compensate this? Well, it's just a lot of money, and it would be more money in a Bundesliga year as well, I think. Mm -hmm looking at around 15 million. And there's no doubt about it, Schalke have become very dependent upon Gazprom, but it has got to a stage in just a few days. And I think it was very clear that this was untenable for Schalke to even be thinking about continuing on with this relationship. We have to bear in mind as well that Schalke are heavily in debt. I mean, seriously in debt. Mm. So um, it's not an easy matter. But I do think that there have been some encouraging noises over the weekend in the Bundesliga. And some of those noises actually came from Hans-Joachim Watzke, the CEO of Borussia Dortmund. And this has echoes of things that have happened in the past in German football. I think it's the, the heartwarming part of German football. Dortmund and Schalke can be great rivals on the pitch. And they are. Sadly, they're in different divisions at the moment, yeah. but great rivals. However, what Vatska said was, and he was talking really in his capacity as chairman of the supervisory board of the DFL, because that's the role he has as well. He was talking in that capacity and saying that the clubs must basically look to come together and assist Schalke financially. And so I, I think that is encouraging. Um, I think Schalke will find a new main sponsor. How soon that will happen, I'm not entirely sure, but um, I think there are signs that that is going to happen. And it's been heading in this direction really since the end of the week, as you mentioned. Hmm. Manu, the shirts sponsor business, that had to be taken off straight away. And from what I've seen this morning, the um, sales of the new shirts with just Schalke 04 on them have been going through the roof. In fact, right on the edge of, of being sold out and customers are being asked for patience. Um, you made a good point, though, in your introduction there. And you're right. I'm a bit older than you. Um, I grew up. I'm a child of the Cold War. You know, I grew up in the, the mid 1960s. Uh, I spent time as a student in Germany in the mid 80s, right on the border of the two Germanys. So that the Cold War is very meaningful to me because I, I, I lived it for a spell. And um, you, you do have these echoes of the Cold War. If anything, back then, there was a certain order because we kind of knew what the order was. We knew what the rules of the game were. The difference here to me is that we don't really know what the, the, the rules of this new game are. We're, we're still working it all out, and it's changing by the hour. Um, but I think it's important to say that Germany, as a country, and people outside Germany or haven't, who haven't spent much time in Germany possibly don't know this, Germany has become ever more reliant on Russia 
in the last mm. few years, in the last couple of decades, in a way that would have been unthinkable, you know, 30 or, or 40 years ago. And of course, that extends uh, to all facets of life, you know, and, you know, just look on the map, look how close Germany is to, to Russia. It's a big power, um, not far from the doorstep. So, you can't really talk about football without talking about all these economic aspects. Of course, in particular, uh, Nord Stream 2, Nord Stream 2, the, the pipeline, mm-hmm. which has now been put on ice, announced last week by the German Chancellor. And there were many people, most people in Germany, um, who until recently would have said that will never happen. We, we, we need this. And um, it's going to be an essential part of, of German life from the point of view of providing gas. So, um, yeah, this is... As you said, a heavy start to the show, but but it's one that we do need to to get into. I mean, and you make a very important point here. Germany's relationship with Russia has been historically close, um, even during the time of the Soviet Union. Right? It's very mm. close, or was very close, leading all the way to Thursday um, yeah. when the world changed. Um, Germany, of course, is the world's biggest producer of everything. <laughs> you know, together yeah. with China, where Germany is the largest exporter of of goods, and um, it's not a country rich in resources. So those resources have to come from somewhere, and they come from Russia. And the world is very much intertwined these days. So I, we we all feeling the impact of this this conflict, this Russian aggression. Um, just by driving to the gas station, whether you're in North America or Europe, the, the, the numbers have been trending upwards significantly, right? And um, it also means that, of course, a lot of things that are being made are going to get way a lot more expensive because these resources now have to come from somewhere else. It's, it's a very good interview um, last night um, mm-hmm. before I went to bed with uh, Robert Habeck. Um, yep. he's of course the vice chancellor of Germany and the federal minister of economic affairs and climate action. And is the, one of the two heads of the green party, um, or was one of the two heads of the green party, because I think now he's in office, the green party has to select two new heads, right? And they did yep. already. So, um, going into the election, he was one of the two heads, um, Baerbock of course, being the other one. Yep. Um, and he said, this is of course going to change a lot of things for Germans and Germany. Um, the Green Party is rethinking a lot of its own policies um, in this regard, um, whether it is, I mean, the big one is to to accelerate um, Germany's independence from natural resources. And the Green Party ran on that platform. I think that's going to get massively accelerated. But then there's, of course, also the fact that Germany will rearm. Um, 100 million euros are going, 100 billion euros are going to be straight up invested into the German military development of new tanks and new planes and um of course also the the increase of spending national spending and that's that's a paradigm shift um, not just for germany but the the europe altogether um and that's a direct result of what we've seen i think german politicians are waking up realizing that they have to defend the country or have to be ready to defend the country which is very scary but um, you talked about the, inter- the, the close interaction between Germany and Russia, and we've seen that in sport many times, right? Um, whether it is with Schalke, it's a big example. Schalke is the second largest club in Germany by membership. Um, Tony is, of course, the former president of Schalke, um, a meat producer, had factories in Russia. Um, and that's where a lot of the money has come from. Obviously, now Schalke ending that relationship. But 
you also saw with the World Cup where a lot of German companies were building stadiums in Russia, right, Derek? And yep. um, I think that interaction has been a very close one. And Germany always had that feeling of guilt towards the Russian people because of what happened during World War II, right? Um, the the genocidal war that Hitler unleashed on Eastern Europe. And uh, there was always this special bond between the two countries because of it. And um, I think that's it's going to be very difficult for a lot of people to sort of walk away from that. Yeah, I, I think on all levels, this is the case. And the word of the week, there's always, a, I think, a, a not a new German word, but a, a, an in vogue German word. And they... The word of the week in in Germany is uh, Zeitenwende, which mm -hmm. um, people will say, well, well, what does that mean? Turning point? Yeah, turning point. But it's actually more start than that. It's almost sort of end of an era, isn't it, really? Yeah, end turning of, of the time. Yeah, yeah. The, it's the end hard of a, to translate. <laughs> yeah, as, as often with German words, it's more subtle yeah. than, than coming up with a, with a simple translation. But it essentially means what we thought was business as usual before is no longer business as usual you know mm -hmm. and i think that's what uh, olaf Scholz, the, the chancellor was was trying to say by using that word and so there's going to be an adjustment period and this does happen i think in german politics a lot i think sometimes it takes a long time to get change but then when change actually comes and there's a kind of a recognition across the board that it must come it happens quite quickly you know, and I think there's been this realization, of course, in in German politics at the moment. We have uh, the the Amper, as the the coalition is known, the, the traffic lights coalition, three parties who are not necessarily singing from the same hymn sheet on most things. They're all having to to wrestle with this issue um, individually as parties. You mentioned the Green Party, but you have the the SPD, which is uh, Scholz's party, and you have the the FDP, the centre right liberal. Uh, party for want of a better description so mm. it's um yeah it, it's impossible to to go into it without i think giving that background um mm -hmm. with regard to to germany and its relationship with russia and the spt of course is also a party that has traditionally very close relationships with yes. russia too and the soviet union as well uh, willy brandt of course is ostpolitik yep um <laughs> We're using a lot of heavy German words in this we podcast are. today, I know. Derek. Um, but it's my, Ostpolitik, my yeah, <laughs> yeah. But this Ostpolitik was, of course, also um, um, well, was also defined as a Zeitenwende at the time yeah. because our German Willy Brandt, of course, a very progressive chancellor, who came in in the sixties and um, um, during a time when the degeneration of the sixty-eights, the sechziger yeah. Um, demanded change because that was, of course, the first generation that had fully grown up in a post-World War II Germany and um, asked their parents, so this would be my father, like my father is a 68er, mm -hmm. um, that generation asked their parents, well, what did you do during World War II? Yeah. And oftentimes the answer wasn't a nice one. Um, and so that caused a Zeitenwende in that regard to uh, Germany finally acknowledging World War II or the wrongs of World War II. Uh, happened around that time um, and you have those paradigm shifts 89 is obviously another one right and i guess we'll now have to include 2022 when germany realized um, a politics of just economics um, without military muscle is no longer feasible and it's a huge change and for scholz who's uh someone who's worked with Angela Merkel, the previous chancellor, very, very closely for many years. And Angela Merkel, of course, was the chancellor of appeasement and the compromise. Um, 
he will have to change his politics drastically as well. And mm -hmm. I think for him, that's actually the hardest part. You know, it's yeah, it's funny. You, you mentioned Habeck. I, I watched. I, I tend to to watch many of the political programs in the evening on German TV, mm -hmm. and I watched Habeck on one of them uh, on a program called Lance, which you know, which is on yeah. uh, ZDF late at night. And um, I, I I just was struck by how quiet and reflective he was. Um, and you could tell that that you know the realization had hit him that this was different. This had to be handled in a different way. And so, yeah, the times are changing. Uh, it's a, it is a new government in Germany. They've only been in power for a few months and now they are faced with acting differently. And, you know, I think you're right. I think 2022 for many people, I think for especially the younger generation of this world will be a watershed year and one mm. that will define a lot of things going forward. Yeah, it's going to be difficult, I think. The, yeah. the next few days, the next few weeks will be very difficult and fearful, I think, um, because we don't know what Vladimir Putin is going to do next. And um, you know this, I've, I've done my PhD in Russian history and politics yeah. and football. And um, he has become very unpredictable at this stage. Um and, and that's the interesting thing, because to go back to what you said earlier, yeah. in the 1980s, I mean, I remember as a young student being right up against the uh, the wall, but but more particularly in my case, the, the fence, you know, the mm -hmm. internal German border. And while it, it was, you know, obviously not a great thing at all, uh, and, and nobody would defend it, we did sort of have a certain idea as to, to what was going to happen you know and there wasn't this sort of unpredictability i mean it, it was it was shocking and the world is a much better place of course for the fact that the iron curtain is no longer in place but it had been a reality for a long time and um we knew what to expect but it's just this not knowing at the moment and as you mm. said really you know feeling for the the people in ukraine who are at the the very difficult sharp end of this yeah, very difficult. Um, I've lived in Kiev um, doing my studies, and mm. it's such a wonderful city. Um, it's a, such a wonderful country, you know, and um, with such wonderful people. And I just, I, it just feels terrible seeing it from a distance and being powerless. Um, yeah, because we are powerless. There's nothing really we can do. Yeah, um, we can of course send money and our prayers, and like, if you believe in that, of course, um, or you know, support in any sort of ways. But there's not much you can do. You you feel powerless. Um, let's move on mm. to other topics because there's other stuff also happening in German football. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about Leipzig, and there's a few things going on with Leipzig that I want to talk about. Um, the first one is, of course, maybe slightly stay on topic. Looks like Leipzig are going to get a bye mm -hmm. to the Europa League quarterfinals. They were, of course, drawn against Spartak Moscow. So another impact here on German football um, with Russian football, it seems like getting the South Africa treatment, as I call it, absolute ban of every sporting activities outside of their own country, right? Um for Tedesco and co, I mean, for Leipzig, I think Tedesco, who was a coach of Spartak Moscow, would probably have enjoyed this encounter, right? I think under normal circumstances, yes. Under these circumstances, I'm not sure. I thought it was very telling when the draw was made. That should have been the first storyline that we all pointed to, you know, Tedesco coming up against his old club. But instead, 
we didn't focus on that. Obviously, we were focusing on the fact that this was a Russian club that they'd been drawn against. And mm. at that time, we didn't know what the future of the tie would be. As we speak now, we await a decision from UEFA. Most of the reputable German sources are reporting that the decision effectively has been made and that Spartak Moscow won't be in the Europa League and it will be a buy for Leipzig propelling them straight through to the quarterfinal. It's been interesting how Leipzig have handled themselves during this over the weekend. Unlike most other clubs, they haven't had too much to say about the the Russian situation. Instead, mm. they've sort of defaulted to this neutral position about how, you know, they're a, a sporting organization and, um, you know, not a political organization and, and not wanting to take sides. But um, Bildzeitung very craftily, I think, managed to sort of come to the conclusion last night that, in fact, Leipzig were well aware of what was happening in the background and were really waiting for UEFA to, to make the decision on this mm. without them having to, to show their whole hand. But it is striking that that's, um, that's the stance they take. I remember when Ralf Rangnick was there, he was pressed several times on what you might call um, socio-political initiatives that are often there with regard to the Bundesliga, whether it's discrimination in society, whether it's mm. um, you know anything you can think of that, that is slightly outside the, the football box. And, and he was also of that view then. I don't know if he's of that view now, but, but he didn't really want to talk about anything that wasn't football. And so this is sort of a, a running theme with, with Leipzig, but it does appear as we speak now, Manu, that they are going to end up being in the, the quarterfinals of the Europa League. Yeah, as as of the time of we recording it, um, it's not official, but it sounds like it will be very soon. Yep. Um, and I I think that's this is then not the only club to go straight through because there's a few other teams still involved from from Russia, right? Um, and it seems like they're all going to get knocked out. Um, I think they're, I, they're the they're the only ones in the uh, in the Europa did, League. Did Zenit get eliminated? Um, I believe they did. Yes. I okay. Well, that. That I mean, that would have been the big one, right? Um, that's literally the Gazprom club. Yeah. Um, UEFA also, of course, making decisions about Gazprom as well. I think that that relationship is going to get ended too. Um, I personally, so this is my personal thought about this. I I, I don't believe um, sports sport sanctions are the best tool in the world, but um, I do think that we're at a point now where and listen, I think there needs to be a big difference between what the Russian people are and what Putin's decisions are. Um, there's a big difference between the two. But I do think that we need to put all possible pressure on the Russian people to demand change within their own country. And that is to hurt them with all the sanctions in the world that we have. Because this can only stop from within Russia. We cannot influence it from the outside. And uh, sports sanctions are a good tool for that. It's like you want to be part of the international community and play in international competitions, well, then tell your president to behave. Mm-hmm. And, and if you think about it this way, if we are saying that as a society, as a global society, and as individual governments, the onus has to be on getting together to put in financial restrictions, um, restrictions on individuals, on banks, freezing assets, things like that, can you really let a 
a, a trading company, which is what a football club is, even though it's an extension of community, it's still a, a trading entity. Can you let that entity trade freely? And the answer is is logically no. You know, mm. it, it would be incongruous to to be allowing that when in every other aspect of life you're saying um, it can't continue as it as it did before. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're both pretty much in agreement there. Yeah. Um, pretty straightforward. What needs to happen is happening, I think. Yeah. Um, let's stay with Leipzig and former coaches. Of course, Ralf Rangnick is an interesting one. Um, mm. Don't have much time to talk about him, but he did workly, work briefly with Locomotive Moscow. Um, clever man. He didn't do it directly. He had a consultancy company that he founded and that worked uh, instead. That was hired by Locomotive. But I wonder how he feels about this right now. Uh, as you said, he always stays very much clear of politics. Interesting. Um, yeah. Not the So he's one former Leipzig coach mm-hmm. um, in the Premier League. Another one is, of course, Ralf Hasenhüttl at uh, Southampton. And it looks like Jesse Marsh could be the next. And um, I find this one interesting because it's not like Leipzig and Leeds have the best relationship at the moment because of the John Kevin Augustine situation. Um, this this is currently uh, at the CAS. Um, Leipzig and Leeds arguing over 21 million euro transfer fee. Uh, Leipzig have won in the first instance at FIFA, um, which means that CAS now has to decide whether or not to uphold that whether the, the, the fee for, for John, Kevin, Augustine. The question why I think this could be important. Maybe it's not. Um, so don't want to spend too much time on it. But there is this wonderful German word, Derek. Mm. When they fire a coach, <laughs> they the word they use is beurlaubt, yep. sent on holiday leave. It's wonderful how you have a German word that's really short. It's just beurlaubt. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and you said earlier before we came onto the show, you called it holiday because <laughs> that's essentially yeah. what it is. But yeah. he's still under contract at Leipzig. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's uh, I suppose the English equivalent is to be put on gardening leave. Yeah. You know, that's the the longer winded um, version of it. Uh, and this, of course, is common that that coaches lose their positions and they are still being paid by the club. It's often the case that once they have a new position somewhere else then there's no longer an obligation to pay them. Um, I honestly don't know the ins and outs of the, the Jesse Marsh Leipzig financial settlement situation. But I think it is interesting that Leeds are going in this direction. I, I think it's logical, to be honest, because it says a lot for a club that at least un- it understands who it is, what it is. If you're saying goodbye to somebody like Bielsa and you have a squad that's set up to play Bielsa style football, then it makes sense to have his successor be somebody who also plays that style of football. If you have a squad of players that can play in, in this manner, you know, and we're talking here about the, for want of a better way to put it, the, the gegen pressing style of football. Yeah. Um, fitting that we use that word on this podcast, of course. I'm sure it comes up from time to time. Uh, I know it does. But, um, you know, rather than doing what English clubs often have done in the past, which is to say, all right, now that that didn't work, ultimately, we're going to tear it all up and go in a completely different direction with a different manager or coach who's going to come in and we'll let him have the keys to the kingdom. He can do whatever he wants. He can sign whoever he wants. And, you know, let's see what happens kind of thing. You know, we'll see which darts actually stick on the board. Different situation here because Leeds are in relegation trouble. 
So they need a, a bit of a like for like. Now, the things about Marsh that I liked were, first of all, he knew what he wanted and he knew how he wanted to play. And he expressed that, I thought, very articulately. He's a, a a good guy. That sounds like a real cliche. He's a good guy. I mean, hopefully most people are are, are good guys, you know, good people. But um, I, I think the players actually liked Jesse Marsh in Leipzig on a personal basis. Yeah. I, I think most people who've come into contact with Jesse Marsh, I mean, you've you've interviewed yeah. him, you've been in his company. He, he is a he's a nice bloke, you know, that there's a it really a, is. There's that um, that quality. Um, they talk about Minnesota nice in the USA. I think he has Wisconsin nice. You know, he has that just natural quality of, of being a, a thoroughly, you know, pleasant person. Um, but I think that in Leipzig, the problem was that the fit wasn't there. And I did a column about it. You can probably find it on online if you want to go and have a look. I did for ESPN on this mm-hmm. when he left the club. And I think you have to really blame the club decision makers in Leipzig for not realizing that under Julian Nagelsmann, they had moved way beyond what they used to be in the early days under Rangnick and of course under um, Ralf Hasenhüttl and then under Rangnick again. They had become a, a different animal. They'd become a possession animal. Uh, they were not the um, you know short route to goal gegen pressing side that they had been before. And um, so Jesse Marsh was not going to be a, a coach who was going to be in tune with the the modern Leipzig, if you like, as opposed to the Leipzig of two or three years ago. In Leeds, if it all goes through, it could be a very different matter. We'll see. Yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting too that we I mean we have to remember how the appointment of Jesse Marsh did happen at Leipzig, right? Because it wasn't straightforward. No. Um, I, at the time when I reported it, they were they did look at other candidates. Oliver Glasner was one. Yeah, Oliver Glasner was the, the big one, I think. And um, now in retrospect, I actually did find out they also did talk to Tedesco at the time too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really interesting because it shows that there was some doubt about it. And I know that Jesse made it quite clear that he wanted that move. And there was some sort of indication that if he doesn't get it, he would leave. And I think they were worried about leave, losing him um, from the organization, right? So they almost gave him the shot on past promises, maybe knowing that it could go wrong, but hoping mm-hmm. for the best. And that's that sometimes happens. I mean, you know, how many times are decisions made that way? Um, but it just, it didn't work. I, I think, they did, as you said, rightfully so, the, the style of football at Leipzig had evolved to such an extent that the game was different now there. And you see Tedesco, who's a much more defensive-oriented coach, is a much better fit there now than um, Marsh was, who's a much more attacking style of coach, right? Who likes to play um, almost without a defense, um, attack, attack, attack. And that worked at Salzburg really well. I'm not sure how well it's going to work at Leeds. It's, that's an interesting question too. And I, I think Leeds too um, have almost an obligation of bringing in an American face because the San Francisco 49 ownership is of course involved at that club, right? Mm-hmm. So there is that there is that angle there that they, they almost want an American, which was also why they went hard after Brandon Aronson in the winter. And Salzburg said vehemently no um, to that transfer. 
for various reasons. I think, again, Augustine probably played a role in that as well. But it's it's interesting how to stick with Leipzig and Tedesco because I definitely had some doubts about Tedesco come in. I think we were all clouded a little bit by what happened in that second year at Schalke, right? Mm-hmm. Where he tried to transition the club to a more attacking approach. Now, of course, we know the talent just wasn't there for that. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really interesting how he put Leipzig on a strong foundation. It's almost like he said, okay, this is how you defend. I'm going to teach you how to defend. Um, so I'm going to teach you how to act in your third of the half. But when it comes to the attacking third of, of Leipzig's game, you guys just do what you can do best. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and they were very good at set plays. As I recall, during that mm-hmm. period, they were very effective making a little go a long way. Um, you're right. I mean, I think um, Minzlaff, Oliver Minzlaff, the the CEO of, of RB Leipzig, I think he, he didn't have too many options when it was clear that the marriage between Leipzig and Jesse Marsh wasn't going to work. But Tedesco was this one option who we know is a good coach. We know he's got something. He'd gone off to Russia. He'd, he'd gone there and, and had done well. And, you know, sooner or later, he was going to get the chance in Germany again. And this is the thing every season when somebody leaves, somebody is is sacked in mid-season in Germany, you're looking at who's available. And sometimes the list is not very long at all. Sometimes there's maybe one person you can say, all right, we'll bring him in probably just till the end of the season. It may or may not happen. And we'll go after our main target in the summer. But with Tedesco, I think the feeling, my feeling was it's a bit different. You know, here's a guy who um, does have something to to show us again in the Bundesliga. And it's been remarkable to me how, smoothly it's all happened but maybe it shouldn't have been remarkable and i'm still in my mind trying to work out is this tedesco or is this just leipzig being who leipzig really always should have been you mm-hmm. know because um and that, that's not to take anything away from tedesco because you know he had pressure when he came in he he came into a situation whereby things were going wrong and he was told by Minzlaff and the decision makers right you have got to get us into the champions league next season that is the minimum uh, responsibility, you know, and from where Leipzig were, that was certainly no um, guarantee. But I just think comparing and contrasting, when I think about some of those performances in the Champions League and in the Bundesliga, how chaotic it was with Leipzig, how players looked as though they were panicking on the ball. You know, there was no smooth build-up. It was, it just all looked very sort of rushed and, and out of kilter. And in a few short games, Tedesco was able to bring that calmness back. And I was reading an interview with Angelino recently, and, and he basically backed that up. He said, no, we, we now are playing in, in the way that we as players want to be playing. We, we see ourselves as a possession team, as a team that wants to exert ball control over the opposition, not as the, the team that wants to, to be reactive and, and you know, attack like mad with, with a lot of players at the same time and leave holes at the back. That is no longer Leipzig. And I tell you, the person who deserves all the credit in the world for, world for all of this is, of course, a fellow by the name of Nagelsmann who made that change in Leipzig. I think most people thought, well, it's not a huge change. He's got a good squad. You can't really go wrong. But again, I think we, we are seeing, if you want to look at Nagelsmann, we can see what a wonderful job he did in his two years in Leipzig in making them better. It is it, that was that was my observation at the time when when Marsh was still in charge. Um, it was almost like the the players were caught between two worlds. Yeah, 
and didn't know what to, how to handle it. You know, they were caught between the, the more defensive possession style approach, playing out of the back to press, 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 press. And it was almost like they tried to do both things at once. And the result was um, catastrophic. You know, it was a catastrophic <laughs> yeah. failure uh, in the defensive style of play. And I, it seems like Tedesco just said, look, and Tedesco and Nagelsmann went to school together, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and this, this is, I think, and Tedesco was very much in the same vein than the Nagelsmann when he first when he first emerged at Erzgebirge Aue and then was signed up by Schalke. Of course, many people thought that they were at the same level. And then, of course, Tedesco, um, as it often is the case at Schalke, stumbled over that club, um, but seems to really be reemerging. And I think that's an interesting one. And, to follow here because I think Tedesco could be very well one of those head coaches. Um, I think you said this on a broadcast, Derek. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. He speaks six languages fluently. Um, I don't think it was me, but but he does. Yeah, he's he speaks. Um, I, it's either five or six. Yes, he does. So it's a, he's incredible man. He's a polyglot. Yeah, yeah. Um, interesting background: Italian, German, of course. Yeah, I, I I think when you look at that squad, and I've, Stefan and I have been saying this for weeks now, I think Leipzig are the, have the best squad in the Bundesliga. Um, I think they have a better squad than Bayern in some regards because defensively, um, they're just so strong. And they, they went out, of course, and signed Sima Khan and Guardiola, by no means the finished product, but very, very good defenders. And it seems to me that there's not many Bundesliga teams with a lot of good defenders and Leipzig have a bunch of them. Um, yeah, and I think that's the one... When, Je- when Jesse Marsh came in, there was this narrative, especially in the USA, I have to mm-hmm. say, um, that did the rounds that, oh, you know, but well, you know, the squad is, is not very strong. He's lost all his best players. This was actually about three weeks into the season after they got off to yep. a bad start. I didn't really hear anybody say that during the summer. And Jesse himself, to be fair, said during the summer... I have maybe the best squad in the Bundesliga. You know, if you're talking about the the depth of squad, he said that himself. So he knew it. He knew it was a good squad. In fairness to Jesse Marsh as well, he recognized early on that he wasn't the right coach for this squad. You know, yeah. that that takes a bit of doing. Not every coach would do that. Most coaches would would have the sort of the the hubris and the the ego that would dictate that no, of course they can they can do anything with any squad. But he knew he'd been brought in to do a particular job, to play a, a particular style that had been rendered obsolete, if you might want to put it that way. Yeah, it, it, very interesting. I'm, I'm really curious how this will play out with Leeds United. Mm. Um, yeah. If he gets a job, and it looks like he will, uh, maybe by the time this show comes out, he already is appointed. Who knows? Um it will be very interesting what he can do there with a very different team, um, you know, with very different players. But maybe that was what he needed. Maybe he needed to leave the Red Bull Cosmos to be successful. Sometimes that's necessary. He's, that's, that's, he's been in the Red Bull Cosmos for such a long time, right? And sometimes that's the step that you need to do. You need to leave your comfort zone a little bit to, to succeed. Um, I want to talk, because we were talking about bad defending, um, Borussia Dortmund, Derek. Mm, yeah, it's so very frustrating watching them. I and I, obviously you played paid very close attention to this. The two games against Rangers, and this is no disrespect to Rangers, but Dortmund should really have beaten them. 
Oh, they certainly should have beaten them based on individual quality. You know, I think of that there is no doubt. But over the two games, um, they just weren't there. And I did a couple of interviews, being a Scot, for Scottish radio and television before the, the first leg. And they were asking me about Borussia Dortmund. And, you know, I said, yeah, listen, nine times out of ten, they should beat Rangers, you know, if you look at the individual quality. But... I also made the point that there is a serious glass jaw quality to the Dortmund mm-hmm. defence. And it's easy to say, well, this team is soft defensively. That team has sometimes one or two problems defensively. I think with Dortmund, the problem is in almost every game, there is some mishap or other, an accident. And you, you look at it and you go, how on earth does this happen at, at, at such a high level? It, it shouldn't be happening. You know, and we saw it with Homers in the the second leg at Ibrox. You know, on that second goal, just a, an elementary error that you're not entitled to think you're going to see from a player of that caliber. Even you know the Julian Brandt challenge that he put in to give away a penalty. I'm yeah. Watching that, going, what is Julian Brandt thinking about putting in a challenge there when when there's no impending danger? There's no need to put in a challenge, and he puts in the challenge, you know, it's right on the line and it's a penalty, you know, and it's little things like that. And again, the game against Augsburg um, that I covered over the weekend for ESPN, they were leading 1-0. They were tired, I think understandably tired after their exertions uh, in Glasgow. And of course, they did have a number of players out injured, but it's the kind of game that, you know, Bayern under those circumstances, I don't think would have let that lead slip. They'd have managed mm-hmm. the game. They'd have seen it out. You know, they'd have done enough to be able to to weather those mini storms. But uh, Dortmund just couldn't do it. And, of course, in, in the game over the weekend, they had to play Marin Pongracic, who, um, oh, my goodness. I mean, it was one error after another from him. And uh, he was targeted by the Augsburg fans. They were booing him whenever he touched the ball. But it, it was... Just a, a repeat of what we've seen from Dortmund time and again. And um, they are the second best team in the Bundesliga, but I don't really think anybody can have any confidence that they're going to get close to Bayern when all is said and done. No, I think when I think the, the only team that has the squad to challenge them um, is Leipzig. Mm-hmm. And you know because they have they have defense, <laughs> but yeah. unfortunately they they had a, such a poor start to the season that it's just impossible now. Right, um, maybe it would have all played out differently if Tedesco had started, but here we are. Uh, Dortmund have a lot of issues. the The amount of goals that they concede is comical. The one against Augsburg um, is just a perfect example. And this was a game that they a hundred percent had in control. Yep, against a very poor Augsburg side. I mean, this is this is a fact. I mean, Augsburg are dire. They're very very poor, and still they managed to score. And I think that's maybe, I, I think the, the Dortmund bosses know it. They've addressed it. They've spent a lot of money on Niklas Süle, which I still think is is a brilliant move by them because they're essentially hurting Bayern where, you know, they're hitting Bayern at their Achilles heel because Bayern's defense isn't exactly spectacular right now either, right? And mm-hmm. they're taking one of the key pieces from Bayern away on a free transfer. Usually this is the sort of thing that Bayern would do to Dortmund. I, I still think that's brilliant. Um, but... Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of work that Dortmund have to do. I know, but before we dig into that too much, um, because I think we have talked about Dortmund's defense in great length, you wanted to address the relegation battle. Mm, And Augsburg Augsburg is a good starting point there. And I know we have Ricardo Pepe there. (sighs) 
this is a transfer that raised some eyebrows because I thought he was going to Wolfsburg. Um, I know that was pretty much done. And then Augsburg come in with this huge offer, a lot of money for, for a now 19-year-old who's previously played very well in MLS, very well in MLS, and we need to point this out, right? But I feel for Pepe because he seemed so very lost in that game against Dortmund. And you look at the amount of money that they spent on him, and yes, they get the equalizer, but I think you and I could put a pub team together and probably score against Dortmund at the moment, right? That's how poor they defensively are. And you wonder, like, what are Augsburg going to do if they go down? And that's a real chance there. They are one of the teams down there. Yeah, I mean, it was a gamble of a signing in the winter window, and they do have financial investment. They, of course, have an American investor by the name of David Blitzer, who gave quite a good interview to Grant Wall recently, which I listened to very carefully. And, um, you know, he's he's somebody who's not, you know, there every day making decisions, but he's very close to Klaus Hofmann, who's the, the president of the board. And there's a relationship there with regard to Blitzer having a stake in his company. And, you know, it came to pass that they, they signed Pepe. Now, if you have that sort of money, most teams in relegation trouble would say, okay, rather than throwing the, the money into one young future prospect let's strengthen the team in other areas to preserve our status you know to basically guarantee that we can stay in the the Bundesliga for what a 12th successive year which is remarkable and you know credit mm. to Stefan Reiter for the, the good work he's done down the years as general manager sporting director to, to keep Augsburg in the Bundesliga but um, yeah based on what we've seen so far um, certainly a gamble because Pepe is not quite ready for the Bundesliga. He's not quite ready to be an impact player. Now, he probably will be, but you've got to give him time. And it's interesting. I was interviewing Joe Scali of, of Mönchengladbach for mm. ESPN just last week. And what they did with him, and again, he didn't come with that big price tag. He came as a, a lesser known young player. But they said, right, six months, you're going to train with the first team. Yes, but you're going to play for the second team. Nobody's really going to know who you are outside the club and you're going to get an introduction to Germany, to German football, uh, away from the spotlight. Pepe, of course, is very much in the spotlight and mm. we're watching his every move. American fans are looking at how many minutes he got and what did he do and trying to accentuate the positives w when they can. But, um, you know, it's probably not the ideal place for a young player trying to make his way. The heat of a relegation battle. I mean, that's what this is for Augsburg. It's backs to the wall every week. It's not stylish football. It's it's gritty, certainly not pretty. And, of course, he's competing with a few old heads there because, you know, Michael Gregorich, Florian Niederlechner, um, Alfred Finbogason, although Finbogason is going to be out for a few weeks. So that, that yeah. gives him more of a chance. Andre Hahn, somebody who can play up front as well. Um, Andy Zakiri, who's out at the moment uh, because of COVID. Um, so there are actually a lot of strikers there. And, and Pepe is having to, to bide his time. But um, if they go down, and they could go down, um, if they finally go down, then there'll be a lot of questions asked about this particular transaction. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I think you see sort of what Wolfsburg would have done um, with Pepe by the way they're treating Kevin Paredes now, right? Yep. They brought him in. He's sitting on the bench. A few minutes here, a few minutes there. Um, 
you know, six months to, to get used to, to Germany, German life, the language, the culture, um, the food, <laughs> um, the intensity, which is enormous. It's a huge difference. Um, MLS is hard to play in, but it's not as intense. Um, and, you know, also getting used to the fact that games still matter even if you're not winning because you could get relegated, which is a mm -hmm. huge difference to MLS where you can't get relegated. And I think this is, um, you know, to the survival of your club is something that you don't have to worry about when you're a young kid playing in MLS. And yeah, I do I do wonder. Um, and I wondered that at the time and I thought it was all very interesting. That's a That was a lot of money spent on on one young player when you needed to obviously do a lot of things to make your squad better. Um, what is your overall take on the relegation battle, Derek? It's really tight. Um, and we have, of course, in Stuttgart and Hertha, two very big clubs down there again. And we have to remember, too, um, that in Schalke, Hamburger, SV, or Werder Bremen, there might be a team in that relegation playoff spot, too. So we could see a relegation playoff spot between, you know, two very big clubs in German football um, playing for one Bundesliga spot. Essentially, it's it's very tight and it's very complicated at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, it's difficult to predict this one. I think that many teams are in this. I think you can probably have a look at the table and you can certainly go as high up as, well, Armenia Bielefeld and maybe beyond that. I mean, for a few weeks we were thinking about Mönchengladbach. We probably still have to think about mm -hmm. Mönchengladbach technically. Wolfsburg, I think, will be okay. Bochum, I think, will be okay. I, I think, yeah, I think but, so too. Yeah, I think the squad is, is strong enough and I think they're well coached by Thomas Reis. But I think Bielefeld, Augsburg, Hertha are the ones who right now I'm focusing on because yeah. I am not convinced that that squad has... The ability, I'm not convinced about the, the heart and character side of it either, which you really need in a relegation battle. And so I think we're going to find out. At the end of last season, they did enough those last few weeks under Pal Dardai to, to get clear of relegation. But it was touch and go. You know, it was not a, a smooth passage. So they're in trouble. Stuttgart, you would think, are in real trouble being second bottom. But I've watched them a lot. And my goodness, what, what, a, 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 what a team for bad luck. You know, mm -hmm. in, in recent weeks, everything that can go wrong has gone wrong. And yeah. you can sort of say one of two things about them. You can say, well, that's a sign they're going down or they've had their bad luck and surely things are going to get better from here. Because um, I, I do think there's enough quality there. The problems have, have been defensive in nature. I mean, just look at the last couple of weeks, you know, looked as though they might beat Hoffenheim. They were in position to do so. And then they lose that game 2-1. Baumgartner takes charge near the end. The game against Bochum, they were all set to win that game. And then they concede right at the death. Um, so will that go on? I, I, I think Stuttgart, Hertha, Augsburg are still very much in it, even though they did well to get a point against Borussia Dortmund. Not totally yeah. convinced there. Bielefeld, I'm a bit more convinced by because whenever I watch Bielefeld, I sort of see a a plan and I see a way of playing under uh, Frank Kramer and I see them making life difficult for, for some of the better teams from time to time. So um, that's going to be interesting because they play um, Augsburg coming up and that'll be very instructive and Stuttgart face Augsburg in, what is it, three weeks? So that's another one that'll be one of those um, 
um, richtungsweisend uh, <laughs> games, to use the, the German word. Uh, I know we're using a lot of German words today. Basically, a direction pointer, an instructive yeah. kind, of, kind of game. Yeah. Hertha is the one. Um, I really, I, Freddie Bobich is someone who I really respect for what he's done at Eintracht Frankfurt. But I do think he got the coaching appointment wrong with yep. with Typhoon Korkut. I, I don't see Korkut being a guy or coach to have A, the ability or the charisma to guide them out of the, the relegation zone. And you see it ever since that appointment. Hertha have been, to use another German word, im Singflug. You know, sort of in the descendancy, I guess. And um, yeah, it's it's not looking good. And Stuttgart is, and I I mean, with the danger of repeating myself, and you pointed this out too, anything that could have gone wrong for them this year got went wrong. Yeah, you know, whether it was COVID outbreaks, whether it was injuries to key players, and not one or two key players, like half the key players, right? And you just know that at some point that luck that luck will come back and then they will put three, four good results together. And that can be enough at, at this stage of the table. You know, you, you get out really quickly. You really quickly can dig yourself out. If you win three or four games in a row, all of a sudden you're laughing. Yeah. Um, essentially, especially because the teams around you might not be winning. And um, so I wouldn't really count them off. Um Arminia Bielefeld is an interesting one for me because Kramer is such an interesting and good coach. Um, of course, another one from that Red Bull school, right? He came from Liefering. He's yeah. done fantastic work there. Gladbach, I just don't see chemistry between Adi Hütter and his side. And that yeah. just means I actually really think Adi Hütter is a very good coach. But it's similar to Marsch and Leipzig. It's just the right coach for the wrong club in some ways. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think that can happen. And we've seen that with different coaches down the years. He did a very good job latterly at Eintracht Frankfurt after a slow start. And I think mm-hmm. this has built him some credit in Gladbach. You know, And things have happened in Gladbach, obviously, this season. Max Eberl in particular, yeah. his departure and just a lot of confusion there at the club. But but I think uh, it was a cracking game, by the way, against Wolfsburg. It was my match of the weekend. Um, just about everything happened. Yeah, Gladbach probably should have won the game, uh, to be mm-hmm. honest, in the end, uh, playing against 10 men with Lacroix sent off. But um, yeah, I, 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 I would say to people who have not paid as much attention to the relegation fight as, as maybe we do, Pay attention to the relegation fight because I think it's going to be fascinating between now and the end of the season. Uh, even even Fürth are making a bit of noise. I don't think that it's going to be enough for them to to stay up. But you know, considering where they were and where they are now, they're only five points behind Stuttgart. They're nine off Hertha in the relegation playoff position. You never know. Um, it's probably a, a bridge too far. But all those teams um, otherwise in that scrap: Stuttgart, Hertha, Augsburg, Bielefeld. I would say. Take your pick. Any of them could finish second bottom. Any of them could be in the relegation playoff spot. And the relegation playoffs are going to be fascinating. Well, remember you and I. Remember you and I were um, we met, didn't we, around yeah. the Stuttgart uh, Union um, playoffs in uh, mm. twenty nineteen? And yeah. you mentioned this earlier. I think this season we're going to have epic playoffs because there's a pretty good chance, uh, as you said, that we're going to have one of those Traditionsvereine from the, the Zweite Liga. 
traditionally big clubs in the playoff. And, you know, imagine if you had Stuttgart again. Imagine if you had Hertha against, mm. say, Hamburg or Schalke. Schalke. Yeah, yeah, you know, or, or Werder Bremen, although Bremen look as though they might get one of the automatic places um, as things stand at the moment. But I, I think it's going to be one of those years for playoffs that will stand the test of time. Playoffs will remember for a while. Yeah, two big teams for one spot in the Bundesliga. Yeah. Um, it's... I always call them 180 minutes of fear, the, the yeah. relegation playoffs, because yeah. sometimes more, sometimes more than 180 minutes, but it's it's brutal to be in. Um, my club, 1860, has put me through this many times. It's for a fan, it's not an experience to envy. For the neutral, it is wonderful to watch because there's everything on the line, you know? Yeah. Um, when you... When you get to play to win something, that's very different than when you get to win to lose everything. Um, yeah. <laughs> so with that in mind, uh, Derek, this this has been a pleasure as always. Thank you so much for, for taking the time and coming on the show and replacing Stefan. Um, before you go, where can people find you? What should people look out for this week? Well, they can find me uh, on Twitter at Raycom, at R-A-E-C-O-M-M. And I think it's going to be a week of uh, following the news because I think football-wise, there will be quite a lot of twists and turns, again, to do with Ukraine and the impact on on German football. Um, and, of course, we also have the Der Bepokal this week, which, uh, mm-hmm. for me, I never tire of saying it, for me, is the best domestic cup competition in the world. And this season... For me, even more interesting because we're going to have an unusual winner. You know, Bayern aren't there, Dortmund aren't there. Uh, anyone's guess. I'm actually commentating for the US audience on Hannover against Leipzig on Wednesday. But of course, you also have Union and St. Pauli going head to head on Tuesday. So, yeah, I'm sure that will occupy minds and attentions for a good part of the week. Dave people call us awesome. I, I love that competition. And yes, you're right. We get a different winner every year, uh, yep. which is why, of course, the Bundesliga is looking into playoffs. Anyways, yep. that's a completely different topic. We actually discussed the playoffs a few weeks ago. So if you want to listen back to that, for, give, give that a try. Anyhow, that's it from us this week. Until next week. Auf Wiedersehen. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.